citizens of Earth, welcome to the Accelerative Thrust Podcast. I am your host, Dan Orr. Uh, I realized when I listened back to the first episode after it was published that I had forgotten to mention my name during the intro. So here you are. I can definitely verify that my name is Dan Orr, and I apologize for that. Uh, just want to let everyone know that um, this podcast is uh, now available on Spotify for streaming. I'm also going to be uploading every episode to the YouTube Accelerative Thrust channel. And you can also find it at the Content Made Right website, www.contentmaderight.com. And on there, you will find that my podcast is hosted along with um, other podcasts. So far, it looks like there is one, two, three, four, five, six. I am the sixth podcast that is hosted on this uh, website so far. The other um, podcasts are The Brood Awakenings, uh, which is um, uh, Seven Hills Brewing, the uh, company that Carl Bush, uh, the guy who uh, actually uh, uh, invited me to put my uh, podcast on this website, uh, he and um, the uh, head brewer Brian Zymet, this is the company that Carl works for, uh, they talk about uh, a lot of different beers throughout the year. Uh, Meteor City is described as an alternate history sci-fi audio drama created and produced by Wrightwood Studios uh, from the Quad Cities. That sounds really cool. So that sounds like it might kind of uh, read like almost like an audio book in podcast form, like a continuing story. Uh, the I'm Super Stoked podcast created by Sean Pryor and AJ Venz. And the description on the website uh, is based on anything and everything that they are super stoked on. And uh, they uh, it allows you, our Generation Y take, on music, movies, video games, beer, wine, current events, and nearly everything entertainment. That sounds like a lot of fun. Drinks and Discourse, Carl um, Bush sits down with local businesses um, and uh, they just talk about the, uh, he talks to them about the great work that they're doing for their community. Uh, the Breaking In podcast, uh, where uh, which is uh, talking about small and medium-sized businesses and their journey of what it takes to be the owner and the leader. That sounds really interesting. And then me, the Accelerative Thrust, hosted by Dan Orr. Accelerative Thrust opens up a can of worms in which he invites on guests to discuss topics ranging from music, comic books, TV, movies, conspiracies, and many other things he finds interesting, plus other ramblings by himself. It's a pop culture smoothie. Of course, I ripped that off from Weird Al Yankovic when he described himself and what he does as a pop culture Cuisinart. So just so everyone knows, um, that description, uh, that part of the description was inspired by Weird Al Yankovic. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the guest that I have on today is uh, Eric Whitaker. He is a, uh, a guy who I've known since high school. Um, so we're talking 20 plus years. Uh, he was one of the first inspirations to me uh, regarding playing music locally, uh, as he was one of the earliest people that I remember um, playing music in Muscatine, Iowa, the town that I grew up in. And he was always writing these really great songs and playing with really fun bands. And I don't remember how I actually got introduced to him or how I started talking to him. I think probably it was just at a show. And I think I just probably walked up to him and told him good job from one of the many bands that I've seen him in throughout the years. And we just started talking about music. And uh, ever since then, we run into each other, you know, every now and then. He lives in Iowa City. I live in Muscatine um, or between Muscatine and Iowa City. And so, you know, we don't hang out a lot or anything like that. But every time that we run into each other, we always have a really cool conversation. And it's always about music. Um, and he's somebody who I've always found his perspective on his love of music and why he loves music and why he plays music. Uh, always very intriguing and always very interesting. There's always he always has something witty to say about um the music he's into about the bands he's in the songs he writes lyrics whatever it is and so i've always enjoyed hearing his take on things so i thought it would be kind of cool to talk to him about bands and records that we love but that when we first heard them we initially didn't like them or didn't care for them and then they eventually grew on us uh and so we talk about that uh, we talk a little bit about the um, pandemic going on right now and its effect on us mentally and everything like that. Uh, we don't really go into too much on that. Uh, but so, uh, some of our conversations about the specific albums and bands gets pretty passionate. Uh, we talk a lot about um, one of the bands in particular, which I'm not going to I'm not going to give any spoilers. Um but we could do an entire episode on that band we've decided. And I'll let you guess which band I'm referring to uh, after you listen to the conversation. And then also I uh, really talk passionately about a uh, specific song that I really like, probably too passionately, uh, where I really kind of just go off topic and start sort of going into a, um, going into a, a mumble, a mumbling phase, if you will, not mumble. That's not the right word. Uh, what should I say? Tirade, I guess like a, I just start going off about this song that I really, really like by a specific band, uh, to the point where I'm like, actually like quoting the lyrics and just laughing about it. And it gets pretty insane. Uh, it was a really fun conversation. Um, this is a long one, folks. Uh, I had the intentions of only talking to Eric for probably about, I don't know, uh, 45 minutes to an hour, no longer. But once we got talking, uh, we just couldn't stop and it ended up being almost two hours. So 
just to give you a um, fair warning, uh, this episode is almost two hours long, but I think it's worth it. I, I thought it was fun. Uh, also want to apologize for the uh, recording quality a little bit. Um, I'm still figuring out how exactly to record these things from Skype, uh, but I'm making do with what I have for now. And, uh, the only way that you get better at something is to keep doing it. So that's the philosophy that I am, um, running into, uh, or that I am abiding by running into that I am abiding by. And, uh, so anyway, just want to give you a, uh, I just want to preface this by saying that the audio quality of the interview is not the best, but I think that, um, the conversation is, it was a really fun conversation. And, uh, I think that it, it, it should be equally as entertaining to listen to. Uh, okay. So if you want to check out, uh, this, uh, show or other shows, go to www.contentmaderight.com where you can, uh, stream this show or the other shows that I mentioned, go to Spotify, uh, follow and subscribe. You can also go to the accelerative thrust YouTube channel, uh, where I also do album reviews and talk about music in videos as well. And you can subscribe to that. Uh, so yeah, basically subscribe to the streaming platform of your choice. And now without further ado, I give you my conversation with Eric Whitaker. So how you been, Eric? Uh, pretty good. Yeah, it's a little, little weird in the world. Oh yeah. yeah. Of course. It hasn't gotten <laughs> yeah, any less weirder, that's for damn sure. What's that? It hasn't gotten any less weirder. No, no, that's true. How have you been? Oh, I've been doing pretty good. Everything is completely normal with me. Nothing uh, nothing different, just living life, you know, because we're opening back up in Muscatine. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's all, uh, you know... Just back to normal life for me. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things opening here as well, but I don't think I'm going to do anything. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't. As as tempted as I've been, um, I mean, I go out, I get groceries, and sometimes I'll go out and take a little ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think, I think once or twice I've like visited people, you know, but mm. make sure, you know, keep the distance, you know, like right. I'm really serious about that because, uh, you know, I live with, uh, my, my dad right now and he's really, uh, immunocompromised, you know, so I have to really take everything serious as far as that goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, right now is, uh, it's uncertain. And I don't think things are going to get certain for a long time. No. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to have a, a long view right now. It's like, I can do it to an extent. And then if I let my mind go too far, then I just freak out. <laughs> exactly. 
I mean, I, gotta, I can only take in a little bit of reality uh, at a time and uh, just get to the next level, you know, of where we are, I guess. But yeah, if I think about the entire world and uh, the the future and everything, yeah, it's a, it's a little too much. So yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, and uh, it's it's so easy to, you know, sit there and just, like you mentioned, let your mind allow you to f- just freak out about everything that's going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so like what I've been doing, uh, you know, obviously, because a common something that we have in common and that I have in common with most, if not all of my friends, probably all of mm. my friends is, uh, of course, music. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, you know, like what I've been doing is uh, I've been, I think I mentioned this the last conversation, but um, I've been uh, making um, uh, playlists of bands and doing their complete discography in order. Oh. And then listening, yeah. listening, like what I'll do is I'll listen to like one album from one band and then like you know, move on to another album from another band and then just go down the list until I finish each discography. And then I'll start like another list. And and what it is, the idea is, is that I'm discovering bands that I've known about bands or artists that I've known about for years that I haven't gotten around to listening to their entire discography. And what I've, what I, what I've been finding is that, uh, there's so much music out there that I'm surprised I never was into. Oh man. It, it's yeah. I, I don't post a lot on uh, social media or whatever, but not so long ago I posted about finally listening to the first Bugazi record, <laughs> um, which is hilarious. Like uh, everyone I, I've ever known basically has been like, into Fugazi and I just didn't do it, you know? And, and, um, I, and I've got, I've got to make a confession. I was one of the people that responded with, uh, with surprise to that. Yeah. But, but it happens. Like you just, there's so much, it's like, um, it, it's really difficult to know which way to go, uh, with your music listening. Like I could spend the rest of time just listening to, avant-garde composers you know what i mean like that could be just what i dedicate the rest of my life to and going back and listening to that or going back and getting way into uh obscure no wave stuff or whatever but then you also have to figure out the stuff you missed and still listen to the stuff you like and try to get into new stuff all at the same time like it's really pretty overwhelming i don't actually know how to be a music fan anymore <laughs> no it's 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 almost next to impossible because i yeah. almost I, I almost feel like the lack of limitations that we have now has has uh affected that exactly because you just have to buy a record i mean you, you could go to the record store you could buy 10 albums if you wanted to but you still had to make it through those 10 albums before you really moved on you know now it's like listen to, you know, three songs off of something and say, hey, I don't know, and then move on. It's kind of like what you were talking about with the 
what we were going to talk about today about things that maybe you weren't into the first time you listened to it. And I actually don't know if I would have continued to try to get into those things if I had access to every album ever made. Yeah. I may have just moved on. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's, there was, you know, and, and, and I hate to, I don't, this is, it's not intended, this is not intended to sound like, you know, like a, like a moment where I'm being like that old guy that says, you know, oh, back in the day, this is what we had to do. You know what I mean? But like, it almost is like, sort of like back in the day, you know, you know, that, that, uh, standard story you always hear, you know, back in the day we had to walk to school in 10 feet of snow, you know, like that it is almost kind of like a good analogy to compare, like how music listeners are able to get into music and access everything so easy now and listen to everything for free versus back then when you did have to do like a lot of digging. And so like, I do wonder if there is, um, kind of like a, uh, uh, truth to the, uh, idea that music was maybe more special back then. Although that's kind of like a, I don't know that, that it's, it's such a, it's such a weird argument because there's so many variables, but you know, right. sometimes you get into that state of mind because you and I both kind of, uh, we, you know, we're, we're, di- there's a difference in age between us, but we both still, you know, we're coming up kind of in our prime when, you know, like cassettes were still kind of right. like how bands recorded their demos, you know? For sure. And, yeah. uh, and like, uh, we all, re- we, we, we both like remember a time when you had to really like gamble on, you know, buying a new CD based on one song that you saw a video to on like MTV. And that just doesn't exist anymore. Well, yeah, but it's kind of cool because like, I don't know, one of my favorite things that ever happened regarding taking a gamble on, you know, kind of, I don't know, on music. I, when I was a kid, I was um, maybe like 13, uh, yeah, probably 13 or 14. And I was at Jack's, which was a discount kind of retail store, kind of like Walmart or whatever. Oh, yeah, I remember Jack's. I yeah, I don't know. It was a long time ago. So, but uh, one of the cassettes they had in like the Super Saver bin, you know, they had this rack of cassettes or whatever, was the Velvet Underground and Nico. And I bought it absolutely because there was a banana on the cover. Like, I thought it was funny. I was like, wow, banana. Okay. And I thought the name of the band was interesting. I was like, okay. And I took it home and I mean, not to be cheesy, but like it 100% for real changed my life, like forever. And a lot of the reason this is going to sound really stupid. I thought that Lou Reed sounded like Gordon Gano from the Violent Femmes. <laughs> like, so I was like, well, he kind of sounds like Gordon Gano. So it's obviously good. I had no idea about the history or anything about it. And like just taking that risk, you know, and who knows, I might've put it on now on Spotify, got halfway through Sunday morning and been like, Oh man, this is it. I don't, this is really lame or whatever. And never had to listen to it and never, 
moved forward uh, from that moment, you know, which was a moment that's marked by hearing that music. It yeah. was me before that and me after that. And it was just because there was a banana on a $3 cassette tape. Yeah, know? yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Taking a risk it, it, with music, it's a, it's a big deal, and I think it's something that is sort of missing. No. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of that. I guess that's that's more kind of what I meant when I was talking about um, when I was talking about music being. But I don't think that music was any better in the right. '80s and '90s than it is now. I mean, you can go, you can find just as many awesome bands right now as you could then, probably even more, to be honest. For sure. If, if you actually like looked. But yeah, no, it was kind of almost like a uh, like a perception thing, I think, where it just felt more special because of experiences like what you just, you know, because mm -hmm. I remember like, you know, countless times I would read interviews with, you know, Nirvana and Green Day, and then they mm -hmm. would uh, talk about Jesus Lizard or Right. Big Black or something, and then I would just go out and buy a Jesus Lizard and Big Black album because of that reason. Which is hilarious. It's, because if you were into Green Day, uh -huh. and you went out and bought Atomizer, yes. it should not probably appeal to you. <laughs> no, yeah, that's very that's very true. But like, if you actually like, and I don't know what your feelings or thoughts are about Green Day, but... Uh, Green Day are, were themselves as individuals were always like awesome about being into all different kinds of music. Uh, oh, sure. And the one yeah. thing, the one thing that people kind of forget about where Green Day comes from, and this is just, this is just, this is getting off track a little bit, but I, I, I find that interesting because it's, you know, uh, on the surface that does seem totally true that Big Black shouldn't have any um, connection to Green Day whatsoever. Uh, but, like, uh, Green Day came from the uh, Bay Area, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think that they were actually from the Bay Area, but they that's the scene that they would play to all the time. And right. uh, Neurosis were from the same same yeah. scene, and, yes. and Neurosis were, like, good friends with Green Day. And so, right. like, that's – it's interesting when you start – putting things together and you start realizing that like, you know, in, in the nineties, it did seem to be more about a, I guess a scene or a group of people more sure. so than maybe like a, like a sound, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think that was a big part of it, but I think it continues today. I think, Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I mean, you know, like, well, like in our local scene, you always right. see Closet Witch play with like, you know, um, you, you'll see like Closet Witch play with like Starry Nights or something, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think proximity is a big element of that, but I also more so think the people are a big part of it. Like you can play with any group of bands and if you all get along and hang out, you're going to continue to set up shows with those people. Like, but if you play with a bill where it's like everyone on the bill is perfectly suited for each other musically but they don't really hit it off like you're probably not going to set up a show with them again yes so it's it's kind of fun in that sense i think that's what actually makes scenes diverse and sort of um sustainable like if you have i mean iowa city's been through this a couple times where if you have 
everything that's happening is exactly the same and every show is exactly the same, it becomes pretty stagnant pretty quickly. Yes. So, you know, even though the people get along, that can happen. But really, if a couple a couple groups or people come in with something really seemingly out of left field, the whole thing shifts. It's like exponential, you know. It, it, it absorbs into the scene and the scene absorbs it like they take from each other. And so... Yeah, I think having super diverse bills is, I mean, you have to. <laughs> it's it's um, very important. So Exactly, and it introduces people to all different kinds of stuff, all different kinds of music. Um, yeah. It allows people to not get just, you know, boxed into a corner. Um, mm-hmm. It's, yeah, yeah, really good stuff. So the topic, uh, as you mentioned uh, earlier, Eric, that I was kind of thinking uh, of uh, talking about that would be kind of cool and interesting that could actually be related uh, Mm -hmm. quite a bit to what we were just talking about just overall. Um, Listening to all of these bands kind of just got me thinking about the first time that I heard bands uh, for the first time that, you know, I'm, I'm into, uh, mm-hmm. but that for whatever reason, when I was younger, um, I couldn't get into them right away. Yeah. And, uh, there were actually, um, you know, there's quite a few that come to mind. Are there, uh, quite a few that come to mind on your end? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I have a number of things that would fit into that category for sure. Yeah, and some of them are even like they they went on to be like the most influential albums to me personally. Um, yeah, and I just for whatever reason I hated them when I first heard them. You know, like when I was like fourteen or fifteen. It's amazing how that yeah. works. And then on the flip side, I could even make a list of bands and albums that I used to love that I feel. I don't feel so strongly about today. Right. You know what I mean? Like actually one of my albums uh, that I had kind of thought about talking about goes from hating it to absolutely thinking it's one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life. And kind of back to, I guess it's just okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's no, there's definitely been quite a few that have, that have actually fallen into that category. And, it's a total U-turn record. That's a rare one. You know? Well, there's there's one record that I still, to this day, uh, when I first heard it, um, I hated it. I, I didn't yeah. get it at all. Um, and then it only took about, it was one of those records that only took about three days. To, you know, some records take like forever to sink in for whatever reason. Uh-huh. Like this one, it only took like a few listens and then I got to the point where I loved it. And I think it's a record that comes as no surprise. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've had conversations with you and all of my music-loving friends about this particular record. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a record that uh, I actually, I call it my favorite record of all time. And okay. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of like like that about it, where I, like, I, like, I hated it when I first heard it. Then three days later, it was the best thing I've ever heard for yeah. like 20 years. Uh-huh. 
Mm-hmm. And then it be and now now it's kind of at that eh, it's kind of okay, but I still it's, consider it my favorite record. Run, though, twenty years. Yeah, I twenty mean, years. Best for, album ever made. For twenty years, it was like <laughs> it was like my favorite record of all time, uh-huh. and I still consider it my favorite record of all time because it is the record. If I had to think about any record that was ever made, uh, yeah. that I wish I would have made. Uh, oh, shit. This is I that, can't take the suspense anymore. <laughs> this is this is that record. Uh, but before I jump into that, because I'm an I'm I'm a dick, and uh, I want to uh, I'm gonna lead up to, uh, you know, I I decided I was gonna lead up to that, and that was totally improv. I, that was not planned, by the way. So I apologize for that, Eric. But um, anyway, before I get into that though, being yeah. as you're the guest, I would like to hear some of your picks for what do you want to do do you want to go ahead and go you want to you want to discuss records that you didn't like that you then liked and then do you want to after after a little while do you want to shift it to records we loved but now don't care for that much that one might be harder i usually stay pretty loyal okay all right Uh, let's let's yeah, we can do that. I can come up with something for sure. Okay, so, I yeah. mean, I think, I think for me, it it will just be pretty much a genre, <laughs> like more, oh, more, oh shit, yeah, more than more than <laughs> anything you want to else. Talk about traditional ska for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there we go, there we go. All right, so how about being as you're the guest? How about uh, we hear some of your picks for okay. records that you absolutely didn't like uh, mm-hmm. when you first heard them, and now you love them. And uh, then uh, some of your reasons behind that. Okay, well, I'm just going to go for it. Hopefully this isn't the album you have picked out that we were leading up to. (laughs) Uh, I I have a feeling. Are you still there, Eric? Eric? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought I I lost you there for a second. I have a feeling (laughs) that the record, my record... My favorite record of all time probably isn't yours, but I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I've been surprised by, I've been surprised before. I would, I would be really surprised if, if it was your favorite record of all time. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Disco Volante by Mr. Bungle. Okay. It's my first, first one. Uh, Mr. Bungle was my favorite band. Um, Probably from about 90, 91 through all of high school, all the way through to like 95 or 6, I guess, 5, when I think Disco Volante came out. Um, it was amazing. Mr. Bungle had pretty much everything that I loved about music at the time. It was goofy and dark and violent and um, strange. And if you played it for someone, they really thought you were uh, interesting and weird and cool, which is kind of all I tried to do when I was in high school is make people think I was interesting and weird. Um, But yeah, then Disco Volante came out and it was really, really different. Uh, It didn't have hardly any of the circus kind of elements to it. The ska was almost completely gone. It didn't, uh, you couldn't really sing along. It wasn't energetic in the same way. 
Um, and so anytime your favorite band puts out a new record, it's already under huge amounts of scrutiny by you. Not only because of the mu musicality of it, but because at that time in your life during high school, you're represented by those bands. Like they kind of represent who you are. Like you walk around saying, I am a fan of this. And that makes me identify as a fan of this. Like people know that about you or whatever. So if your, your favorite band like puts out some trash, like all of a sudden you have to decide if you're going to defend it or just be done with them sort of, you know? And so, yeah, uh, Disco Volante, it, I had to come back to it many, many, many times. Um, I listened to it a lot with uh, Sean Jones right before we moved from Muscatine to Waterloo. And we honestly just kept listening to it. We listened to it on a tape on loop for every single night for a year. We cruised around Muscatine listening to Disco Volante <laughs> for hours. And I mean, it was beyond a favorite album. It was everything. But it just took a little time to say, this band is growing. They're changing. They're using lots of different influences. They're presenting it to us. They're presenting their findings from their, like, expedition into weirdness, you know? And, uh, and then we're stuck trying to kind of sift through it. And, but, you know... After a certain point, obviously, I was just like, this is genius. This is amazing. This is beyond reproach. This is the most experimental thing I've ever heard in my life. And I love it. You know? That is a solid pick, man. Yeah. I, I, it, yeah. It, it's an amazing album. And now I, it's funny because after getting into a lot of experimental stuff and avant garde composers, I can see that all they really did was kind of take a lot of things, piece it together and put it out. You know, like there are certain composers like George Crumb, who if you listen to some of his stuff, I mean, you could not tell the difference between that and Secret Chiefs 3 or uh, Mr. Bungle. Like, yeah. they just took it, which is cool because no, there's no other reason that it, 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid in Muscatine, Iowa is ever going to listen to Terry Riley or George Crumb or Penderecki. Like, they're not going to do it. Why would you do that? You know? <laughs> like, well, and yeah, so, and, and I think, like, uh, I think they kind of took that sort of thing, that sort of sound, I, you know, like of the experimental, deconstructed, avant-garde music, mm -hmm. uh, to kind of uh, levels that it really had never been to. And I mean, it's, they, they did it th through such a, such a lens of Mr. Bungle that while I definitely do compare it to those things. Um, and, and I got to admit uh, most of those composers you just listed off. I'm not as familiar with, but I've heard a little bit of the stuff and, mm -hmm. and to me, Mr. Bungle did it through such a Mr. Did it in such a, a Mr. Bungle way 
You know what I mean? That it like it was able to kind of be accessible to people who otherwise wouldn't touch that stuff somehow. Mm, Some, somehow. Like, and it's it's also amazing that that record was on Warner Brothers Records and that it was <laughs> Mike Patton of Faith No More, the same guy who was doing like funk rap metal like a few years right. back with a one hit. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think a lot of it had to do with John Zorn, too, though. Like, I think that the first record was so strange, at least in the world of, I guess we could call it alternative metal. It was strange enough that they got John Zorn involved, and he totally made it weird. But I think he also exposed the members of that to a lot of different things. I mean, that's the only thing I can come up with, is that, you know, they they learned a lot about experimental avant-garde music by working with John Zorn. I don't know where else they would have just found it in like Eureka or wherever, you know? Yeah. And so I think that probably had a lot to do with it. And that's really an important lesson to learn, I think. And I think philosophically, I did learn that from watching Mr. Bungle get so weird was that the people that you're around and the people that, you take influence from it can make a huge difference in your life, like beyond huge, like everything. Like, and it doesn't mean that you always have to be the coolest person that knows the weirdest things, but just kind of be friends with a group of people or as many people as you can that are into different weird things. You know, absolutely. Like, all, all of my friends were weird, way down into deep, weird rabbit holes with music. And I just got to pick from them what I what I was going to listen to, you know? It was yeah. like, Sean would be into industrial, or Salik would be into, oh, whatever he's into. Or, you know, just all of my friends had certain things that they liked. It was almost like a filtration system set up, you know? Sure, sure. <laughs> well, hanging out with you guys, uh, you know, like uh, Sean and you and, and Noah and, and Salik, um, you know, and all those guys, like, that's what got me into a lot of this kind of stuff and, like, stuff like The Residence, you know, oh, yeah. and things yeah. things like that. Like, that's that's where I first heard of, like, I know for a fact, and I don't remember any specific time or anything, but I know for a fact that Salik's the one that introduced me to The Residence, I'm sure, yeah. you know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's always been interesting to me, too. Um that uh, Disco Volante sounded more like a John Zorn record than the first mm-hmm. album, and it was self-produced, and the first album was produced by John Zorn. Totally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. Which I think Hopefully I think that have a little I, kickback too. From yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I think that validates your your point that you just made about how uh, Patton got the other members or John Zorn got the members of Mr. Bungle into his world. You know, I think, I think they took such inspiration from that, that musical world that it's like at that time they had to make a record like that. Right. Yeah. And it's cool because a lot of those guys I'm sure are trained. I don't know if they're classically trained or whatever, but they're all really talented musicians. Yeah. So I'm sure that they were exposed to a lot of stuff. Absolutely. You know, through Absolutely. school or whatever. 
Um, but more so being open to it, you know, and being as a band, I think it's really interesting to make a decision where you're all going to be open to change and open to doing things differently than what was successful for you before. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know anything about that because every band I'm ever in only does one recording, but <laughs> so, we don't have to grow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for a whole band to just say, yeah, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to have death metal just fall apart into, you know, a repeating phrase drone and then into ska. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But all it would take is everyone being open yes. to come up with those ideas, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine how how uh, difficult that would have been, especially around that period of time, to get anybody else willing to do that when they're signed to Warner Brothers. Absolutely. Can you imagine, like, you could play, and I'm not putting anything down, but with with a far enough view back, you can see that almost everything was a trend, at, you know? Oh, yeah. And so, like, Mr. Bungle, although interesting, and Primus, although interesting, and Fishbone, and, and Voivod, or whoever, like, there was an element of all of those bands could have been successful in a certain way for a long time, just hanging out together and playing together. Yeah. You know, and Mr. Bungle essentially with this album said, uh, I guess we're just not going to have any fans anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, At least not the same ones. Which and I mean, that's it, big. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which in, and then in the end, like most true, like, pioneers they ended up probably having more fans because of it i think so i think as far as maybe not mr bungle as a band but definitely as a group and like a collective out output sort of you know like everyone who was into bungle all of a sudden was like oh shit this is way bigger like now there's secret chiefs three and now there's Lovage, and now there's all the John Zorn records, and then now there's Zodic Records that puts all this stuff out, you know. And all of a sudden, you were just buying into not only one funk metal band from California, but like an entire thing. It was like, yeah, oh shit, I, guess I listen to experimental classical music now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It was, it was, it was a really interesting time period. Yeah, uh, like, for sure. At least in that in that sort of scene. Um, all right, so yeah, Disco Volante. That's a solid pick. Uh, I would agree with you 100% on that, but I don't have personal memories of when I mm. first got into Disco. Honestly, like the only thing I remember is my friend Josh, um, who you also know, actually. Um, he uh, loaned me. I, I had only heard the real thing. And that was yeah. it. Like, I thought Faith No More were, yeah, but I didn't know anything existed with, like, Mike Patton beyond that. Mm-hmm. I, I knew Angel Dust, but, like, right. King for a Day had just come out, and I remember he loaned me King for a Day, the first Mr. Bungle album, and Angel Dust, because I hadn't heard any of that. And then I yeah. went out, I think I just went out and bought both Mr. Bungle albums, and I just, I don't remember, I honestly don't remember my initial reaction to that record, but I know that at some point I loved it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. But uh, what are some other picks, Eric? Um, well, 
The other one is almost the exact same story. <laughs> like, for real, all the same characters. Sure. Um, the same sort of idea. My other favorite band, one of my other favorite bands at the time during, you know, high school era or whatever, was Ween. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, the... Uh, and what I loved about Ween was what I think everyone loved about Ween at the time. It was like a dark insane dirty version of like they might be giants it was right. like goofy as hell you know but it also was like kind of gross and <laughs> brutal and stupid like and irreverent like the stupidity was just it was purposeful it was like with a I don't know how to describe how stupid we is or was <laughs> yeah and i loved it i loved the idea of someone just doing bong rips and <laughs> inhaling glade and just hitting record on a tascam with some garbage drum machine and just being worthless just absolutely <laughs> worthless which when you're young when i mean it's as far as i remember i haven't been young in a long ass time but i remember just this feeling of destruction like you just wanted everything to kind of fail and you just wanted to be part of it you're just like i don't care i'd rather lay in bed and listen to ween and not give a shit about anything like i don't know maybe kids aren't like that now but they feel i feel like they were in the 90s but anyway so <laughs> that's so, so true so true came out and it was really good like really good and it wasn't very offensive. Um, it didn't seem very stupid. <laughs> and they were writing songs and trying. And I mean, there were moments on other records on chocolate and cheese and everything where they would write a beautiful song or something, but they always had to mask it. Like there's a song birthday boy. I think it's on Godwin Satan. I don't know. Yeah. For sure. Yep. yep. Um, gorgeous amazing song like really beautiful but it's under so much noise and crap that it's almost unlistenable and they had to do that to save face they had to say all right we're getting sentimental here we're showing our true feelings we're gonna have to mess this up and make it shitty like like all the offensive stuff in baby bitch same kind of idea like well we're getting a little too real here and so you get to the mollusk and in a certain way it's the unrealist thing they've ever put out because it's all a concept record about like the sea or whatever you know and but at the same time there's just it's gorgeous but at first i was like fuck this if i wanted to listen to whatever was happening at the time that was just really nice normal music it was like why would i do that if i wanted to listen to dave matthews i would do or counting crows like i would do that like we represent something and this record the mollusk is not that you know um but then over time i i just i fell in love with it i absolutely adore it and there's still moments in it i can't even listen to the last track uh without crying for real i'm almost crying talking about it and I just realized that that irreverence and self-destruction, it does have an expiration date on it, you know, 
like it doesn't mean that it's not valid and something you can tap into when you need it, but it can't be the whole thing all the time. Like self-destruction can't be your whole deal all the time or your time is going to be really short and ultimately looked upon as pretty wasteful, you know? And so I think that's kind of what I took from that was everyone has to evolve a little, you know, <laughs> like you have to change a little or otherwise what have you done? You're stuck. I mean, maybe Motorhead doesn't have to or whatever, but or Slayer, <laughs> but you know, other people do. <laughs> so, yeah. But then of course uh, that album became one of my favorite albums. It still is. I, I still can put it on sing along with it and be really, really stoked to be having that experience, you know? Yeah. I mean, Ween, dude, like that's, that's definitely one of my favorites for sure. Um, the, my, my experience with Ween, uh, real quick, not to cut you off here, Eric, uh, but, 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 um, Ween, I mean, you, you know, my, my best friend, Travis, he, uh, yeah. he's the one that got me into Ween and, uh, you know, um, I, uh, I, I just remember, um, I saw the video to push a little daisies, um, yeah. on Beavis and Butthead. And I oh, just, right. I remember yeah. thinking to myself, this fits really well with Beavis and Butthead, whatever, whatever yeah. this music is and whatever that show was, this is like perfect. Like, it's almost like they, they had like a, like, like a revelation when they saw that video, we have to put this on, you know, like this yeah. show. And, um, I, uh, I remember like just my first initial reaction, which I think is most people's first reaction is what the hell is this? And, uh, I remember he had a copy of pure guava and we listened to it and I always associate, uh, ween early ween anyway, with like those hot summer mornings, 10th grade summer, when you're like, you know, you, 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 ha you still are able to wake up at one o'clock in the afternoon without being judged, drink right. a whole two liter of fucking Coke and yeah. eat nothing but pizza and bur leftover birthday cake all day <laughs> and like not be viewed as like a threat to society or something. Right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, cause you're 15, you know, you're 15 and you're 16 and, responsibility doesn't matter at all. That's what I always associated like listening to early ween with. And I still do. And I still, there's still a part of me that thinks that, Hey, fat boy asshole is the best song ever written. <laughs> like, like, you it know, might be. I mean, I can't disprove. No one can disprove it. <laughs> that's true. I mean, they, yeah, dude, that's going to be my argument. Like, yeah, that, that band sucks. It's like, Oh yeah, prove it. Yeah, right. <laughs> what are you gonna find some scientists to prove it i mean come on <laughs> but like that would be great if they started doing scientific studies about Man, i'll tell you what if there is a way i could be a scientist and just listen to weed all day yeah. i will take that job i'll go back to school right now yeah. so. <laughs> studies have proven this band sucks <laughs> yeah. but uh anyway um anyway but then um yeah, I mean, I didn't really acknowledge or appreciate Wayne's actual talent. I mean, I, 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 you know, I loved those records, but I didn't think of them in terms of like 
these guys are really masterful musicians and songwriters. Um, really until even after the mollusk, like I listened to the mollusk and I, I could actually, I'm not going to put that, put that on the list, but I could actually put that on the list, uh, of, uh, records I first heard that I didn't really care for at first. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I really started to, um, recognize them as, uh, really good musicians and songwriters about the time that Quebec came out. And I was like, and then I went back and then I was like, holy shit, this whole time I have not been paying attention to really how awesome these guys, I mean, People forget they made a goddamn country album, and it's really good. And it's but it's a, it's a country album. It's like yeah, it's, it's not. People will say that that is not a good record. But yeah, they're before the mollusk that definitely has some of the best songwriting, like through and through, from beginning to end. A well written song. Yeah, that record has it. Like, and some Absolutely. of them are great. I mean, dude, I don't want to leave you on the farm is actually a so, song that that will actually like if you actually think about it, it it'll put you in tears. Like, oh, yeah. Like the I guess it'd be a pre-chorus or whatever, but the uh um days go, go by, by and I'm still high, <laughs> but you know I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, about you. you. My favorite line is, I'll keep trucking and getting myself stoned. <laughs> like, but see, the thing yeah. is, like, I don't think that the 16-year-olds that are waking up at 1 p.m. Right. and drinking a whole two liter of Coke and eating pizza and birthday cake all day, <laughs> I don't think they're the real threat. I think the real threats to society are the people that say that that album is bad. Those are the ones that... <laughs> We really need to like, there's something wrong with you, dude. Like, I don't know what it is, but you know, we really need country golden haters club. (laughs) Dude, 12 golden country haters club. That is dude. Oh man. I think I'm going to call this episode that (laughs) I think I really might. Uh, 12 golden country haters club with Eric Whitaker. Dude. Well, the thing is, too, we could talk about that record as well. Like, I didn't like that when it came out, when it came out, but I thought it was enough of a novelty and a joke that I didn't actually even have to have an opinion. Yeah, and I, you know, when I first heard it, like when when I first saw that it was it was in CMJ magazine. Does anyone remember those? Uh, oh, I loved you, CMJ. <laughs> me too, but uh. I saw me and Travis looked at the release dates and we saw what the hell Ween's coming out with a new record and it's yeah. called 12 golden country greats. And yeah. immediately we thought, Oh yeah, that's not really going to be a country album. And yeah. then, yeah. It's on too. You're like, Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> when I saw the album cover, I about fucking dude, I, I don't think that I talked to anybody for three days because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> like I was just like, holy sh! these guys have really done done it. Uh, yeah. The best song on there, though. Uh, well, actually, I think it is I Don't Want to Leave You on the Farm, but I really like Pretty Girl. That's like... Oh, it's very stupid. <laughs> yeah. It's stupid. Like, it's, yeah. But it's like, it, it totally puts you in mind of like going to like you know, the uh, old Threshers club, like with your yeah. parents and grandparents and seeing the bluegrass 
players and they actually like capture that feeling like and I think that they're like sincere about those types of things. I don't think that they're like necessarily making fun of the genre. I think they really like that kind of stuff, you know, like uh, even though like a lot of times it does appear that they're just making fun of it. But yeah, fluffy, dude. Come on. Yeah, fluffy rules. So, <laughs> but he can't. It can't start that first guitar string pluck yeah. at the chord. I'm like, shit. I'm here for six minutes or whatever. Yeah. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Exactly. There's, it's, dude. Like, dude. there's so many stupid things in that record. It's funny we're talking about the mollusks because I could have an equally in-depth conversation about the mollusks. But there's so many weird things on the country album. Like, you could speak to a turtle just by flipping him around. (laughs) I love, I love a Japanese cowboy where he's like, breakfast at Shoney's, $2.99. (laughs) Like, because I remember, like, the Shoney's, like, you know, like, going on, like, vacations with my parents, and we would eat at Shoney's, and I'll be goddamn, breakfast was $2.99 if you wanted a special. Like, you know, it's just like, there's so many, that's the one thing that Ween always kind of does is they sort of like, they're, they're like masters at like bridging the gap between like, uh, reality and like total just fucking bullshit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like on, in, uh, in Fluffy, he's like, what, he says something like about Penny, uh, <laughs> yeah. talks to the pig yeah. or something. No, Somebody it's a, it's a, I I just listened to this. Uh, actually, I just listened to this album not that long ago. It's like the pig says to Penny, <laughs> "Get fluffy back <laughs> on the <hell>. porch." <laughs> like, <laughs> and I just love how it's like. So you got this dog that chews his leg off, and then he like goes running. And let's get, like, everybody back on the porch for some reason. (laughs) It's just, it's so ridiculous. But then, yeah, you have those, like, sincere, like, moments. Like, with every Ween record, if you think about it, like, hell, even on, like, even as far back as, like, kind of pure guava to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. Like, you, you actually have those moments of just pure, like, honesty and vulnerability where the it does seem like maybe they're actually writing about a true like relationship or something like um well i don't know maybe not pure <laughs> but like uh where they tried to do what you cut out for just a second oh, i'm sorry uh uh i don't know what you got but i was just saying like on, on pure guava even like there's parts uh-huh. that are like parts of that album that are like it almost, you know, you could almost hear like vulnerability coming out to a certain extent. Like for sure, I mean, it even, goes all the way back to the pod. Like their whole yeah. discography has moments. Well, where... like that. Well, like that. Um, a song off the pod, actually, specifically. Uh, oh my dear, I must be falling in love. Oh you know? yeah, it's so sweet. Yeah, it's so sweet. Or like, uh, Sarah, I think. Is yeah, on. Sarah. Um. Um. But yeah. yeah, there's so even pork roll, egg, and cheese. If you take the chorus out, is a really tender song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of how they've always been. Like their entire yeah. like, you dude. Actually, one of my favorite Ween songs ever uh, mm-hmm. is on the special edition uh, version, the the reissue of uh, God Ween Satan. Okay. Um, 
Hippie Smell. Have you ever heard that song? I have heard it. I don't remember it offhand. I don't think I have that copy of that record. Okay. Special uh, edition. They yeah. used to have it on Spotify, but for some reason, it t- but you can find it on YouTube. But okay. that song, it totally sounds like a, like a night, you know, like a, a cross between like a 60s hippie jam song meets like a 90s alternative jam song that's trying to be a 60s hippie jam song <laughs> like you know what i mean like it totally sounds like that uh yeah. and uh it's like the chorus is like hippie smell patchouli oil hey. and then then like one of the guys i don't remember what it is it goes into this like weird sort of like uh part in the middle where like they uh where like uh one of them is just like playing like some dad like some like retired like sergeant who's like bitching at him about grateful dead posters on the wall and he's all like you can see the grateful dead posters on the wall and then towards the end he's like Oh, yeah, you must go back to the 70s. Those were really groovy times. And then he's like <laughs> telling him that he wouldn't want to be alive in the 70s. He'll probably get his hippie ass killed. <laughs> and then, then they turn around and they do like, we will do like a seven minute like jam song. <laughs> you know? like, uh, just, I'll have to check that out. I don't know if I know that track or not. I got so. way too in the dis- in, into describing that song. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Dude, because it's it's just one of my favorites. Okay, dude. So, uh, dude, dude, dude. I, he actually does that at the beginning. He's he says, dude, <laughs> dude. You know, just like it's great. Yeah, you got to listen to it, Eric. Um, okay, so uh, so so far we got Ween the Mollusk and Mr. Bungle Disco Volante. Any others? I couldn't really come up with a lot of other records. There are bands, of course, but we can talk about that now. Yeah, later. yeah. Let's let let's talk about the bands because actually, I have I have some bands too. Cool. Well, um, for me, these are all kind of bands that influenced me a lot after I decided they were worth a shit. Sure. Because at first I hated them. Sure. Um, the first one. I think we could go with Suicide. Um, I I don't know if you listen to a lot of Suicide or not. Um, I've listened I've listened to them a little bit, um, and I'm definitely familiar with them, and I know what yeah. their sound is. But yeah. yeah, I'm not. I I can't make like a. Uh, I don't have an opinion either way on Suicide. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. The first time I heard them, I was just like, "Well, this is trash." I mean, this is so worthless. I don't even understand how this got made. Like, it's just seriously a, a, like a drum machine and not like a 808 or like a modern sort of drum machine, but like an organ drum machine. I grew up my with uh, organs and organ players. My, we always had one growing up. Uh, my grandparents always had one. So like numerous times in my life, I had turned on the drum machine on the organ, cranked the tempo, and pretended I was playing like heavy metal or something, you know? So (laughs) to hear someone doing that, I was just like, okay, well, that's dumb. And then just like some organ and sort of like early synth sounds over those drums. And then a guy just yelping and talking. It was just like, it had no merit and no value. And I just, 
thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. And, uh, but then I listened to it some more and then some more and then some more. And before long, it was easily one of the touchstones for everything I've done since, whether it be anything, whether it was anything that I've worked on. It could be bluegrass. It could be hardcore. It could be electronic. But there was always this feeling of, you can just let this ride for a while. You can just make, force people to be present in the song by having nothing happen. You know, it was like, this thing is just going to happen. When a suicide song starts, you're in it till the end of the song. That's it. Like, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to get interesting or better or worse. You're just there. You have to be present, and you just have to accept it, and you can either get into it or you can hate it. And ultimately, I got into it. But uh, for a long time, I hated it. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I know that suicide is very influential. Um, I'm I'm gonna have to you know check them out a little bit more personally. But uh, didn't one of their members pass away not that long ago? Uh, yeah, I think I think Alan Vega passed away. Yeah, I think you're right. That sounds about yeah. right. Um, uh, and I don't know. It I I it's always a shitty thing to say about someone but i'm pretty surprised that he made it that long you know oh sure it was a pretty pretty rough character overall and you know i sometimes sometimes doing a bunch of drugs and living like that apparently can make you uh, live a lot longer than your counterparts yeah (laughs) but uh, most of the time it doesn't you know so exactly yeah yeah Cool. Um, I feel like I'm monopolizing this this uh, talk, though. I think you should you should talk about something. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, is that all you got, or do you do you have any more? That uh, you I get? also had Craftwork. Uh, oh, really? Uh, you didn't like Craftwork the first time you heard them? Well, uh, I got into Craftwork. Well, you know, probably more so like in 1990 seven or so uh-huh. when uh, Gimpy started and we were kind of combing uh, the past for any sort of like synth stuff. Sure. Um, so we were into everything from the cars to Gary Newman to Kraftwerk to uh, Stockhausen. Anything that used the synthesizer we were into. Sure. So that's when I, and, and of course Devo. But um, Kraftwerk was before that, all I knew about Kraftwerk was there was this Saturday Night Live skit uh, where Mike Myers was like a German uh, DJ or something, or he hosted a dance show, an industrial dance show. Yeah, wasn't um, that like Sprockets or something like yeah, that? Yeah, his name was Detour. <laughs> yeah. And he would always say, like, talk about Kraftwerk, you know? Yeah, yeah, Kraftwerk, yeah. It was like a big joke. It was kind of like how Hawkwind was a big joke or like Philip Glass. It becomes like a touch, like a reference point for people that don't actually know anything about what they're talking about, but it it becomes like a joke, you know? Right. And so that's how I viewed Kraftwerk. And the first record I heard was Autobahn. 
And if you like craft work, Autobahn's freaking amazing. Okay? Right. If, if you don't like them, it is ridiculous <laughs> and very stupid. I mean, seriously, the vocoder just going, Autobahn. <laughs> like, come on. What's going on? And the B side is not even electronic. It's just like, it's like kraut rock. And when you're a kid, when you're 15 or something, that's not good music yet. Right. <laughs> it has no purpose or drive or emotion. And like when you're 15 years old, like that's all you want out of music. You want somebody to say something you don't feel you have the voice to say in a way that not only excites you, but represents a way that you don't get to act in real life. You know, you know, if you listen to like suicidal tendencies or something, shit, when you're 15, hell yeah. Like, let's just get mad and scream and be mad at our parents and hell yeah, why not? Whereas crowd rock is like, what the hell is the point of this? You know? Absolutely. For years, I, I treated Kraftwerk like the joke that I was presented with, you know, as far as everything I'd ever heard or seen about Kraftwerk. And uh, then even during Gimpy, I was like, yeah, Kraftwerk's cool, but um, it still doesn't do anything or go anywhere. Yeah. And, but then over the years, um, especially in the last 10 years probably, it is my go-to. Honestly, Suicide and Kraftwerk are 40% of all music I listen to, probably. <laughs> so, That's... Um, and it's just like when you start to realize not only that real people played it, but that they sequenced it. And that's very important. Like if you get to, and how funky and interesting it is. And I think Kraftwerk, when people look at it, they're like, well, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't really understand how funky they were being. They didn't understand that it took Africa Mabata to see how funky this is to turn it into hip-hop or whatever. But it's absolutely not true. Like, Kraftwerk were smart people. They went to nightclubs. They knew what was happening in the world, and they reflected it through music that is so alien and strange and so much just theirs that everyone was like, well, these must be idiot savants. They must not actually understand what's happening, you know? And so, I don't know. It just, uh, once I opened myself up to really hearing what was happening on those records, I was exposed to a whole new way of not only hearing music, but making music and understanding that machines aren't the enemy of creativity. You know, I'm not going to say they're the ultimate tool or whatever, because playing music live with real people on, I'm doing a lot of air quotes right now, real people on real instruments. Um, there's still an energy there that you can't get from a sequencer. There's just no way, but yes. there's an energy you can tap into when you don't work with real people as well. You know? Yeah. It's so. always, it's always good to keep an open mind when it comes to that kind of stuff. My uh, introduction to craft work was uh, Big Black uh, songs about fucking and their 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 cover of the model, and I was in a band 
that yeah. covered the model, and <laughs> I remember introducing it as "This is a song from Big Black." Nice. <laughs> and that, the funny part is, it's like Man Machine, the record that's on, is to me the most accessible record, and the model is probably the most accessible Kraftwerk song, which is awesome that Big Black covered it because it, they could turn it into a real song, you know. And Absolutely. They didn't actually change very much of it. Yes. But um, it's it's funny because. They never really happened upon that sort of songwriting again, I think. So it's really cool that well, they did cover heard it they did cover Cheap it. Trick also. Um, yeah, that uh, that single uh, is one of the best presentations I've ever seen as far as graphic design. Absolutely, it it, it it's amazing. And now we live in a time where everything's a parody of everything all yep. the time. Yeah, and but this was strange. They took the photos, they recreated it all, and it looked just magnificent, you know? And, like, holding that in your hand, it's like, you're really tuned into something. You're like, shit, this is where Big Black comes from, and they're not even hiding it. One side is Cheap Trick and one side is Kraftwerk. That's it. You no, know? yeah, if you, if you actually, like, <laughs> see, you know, a lot of interviews with Steve Albini, he'll tell you that, like, some of his, he liked Throbbing Gristle and stuff mm -hmm. that was like, definitely like non-musical, but he also loved Cheap Trick and like ZZ Top and Blondie yeah. and stuff like that, you know? So sure. he's a very interesting guy uh, when it comes to uh, his musical sensibilities. Uh, do you have any anything else to add? Uh, the only other one I had was Fear. Um, I first heard fear the album oh must be maybe like 15 years ago now and i i couldn't believe it i had seen fear in um decline of western civilization but they don't really show them playing music very much it's mostly leaving just being a big homophobe and you know trying to fight people or whatever sure and so I didn't really think that much of them. I thought, well, this this is kind of a, I don't know what this is, because they didn't really play any music on Western Civilization. So I heard Fear the Album. I thought it was, I mean, beyond garbage. Like, not only was it poorly played, poorly produced, but it was just misogynistic and homophobic and stupid. It was like, it was... How I imagine, okay, this is a really stupid reference, but in the Flintstones, there's an episode where Fred becomes uh, like a rockabilly star, okay? And he sings this dumbass song. I don't even remember what it is. But it's like just the most homogenized, stupid version <laughs> of what rockabilly was or whatever, you know? Right. And it kind of felt like fear was the same thing. Like, here's this old dude, came back from Vietnam saw this scene where he got to be a dick and play music and he just pretended to write punk rock and make punk rock music. And I still sort of think a lot of that's true. But hear me out. <laughs> the, the music is outrageous. Like, it, I don't know if they were geniuses or if they were idiots or something in between. 
but uh, it's really strange stuff. The timing is strange. Uh, just the how songs are outlined. Um, the melodies are just really strange. The song uh, Camarillo, I I was in a group called Los Voltage, and I can't say how much that one song influenced what we did because it was the timing was just super confident like so confident like i said that you can't even tell if they know what they're doing and so you know i took a lot from it i also just took a lot from this idea of even though like i said leaving has a lot of issues it's problematic I think it's cool that he saw a scene being older and still saying like, I got stuff to say too, or I've got sounds that I want to make too. And I'm not going to be afraid of the fact that I'm older or that I'm from a different generation, or I might have different influences than all these people around me. Like he still, he still tried, you know, and that's, I think important to not be intimidated by how different you are from the people you are that are around you, you know, because um, that's that they'll stop you dead in your tracks every time, like looking around and saying, "I don't fit in with these people. I'm not going to try something new." Like screw that. Like try something new. If it doesn't work, keep trying it somewhere else with other people. You know, someone's going to get it eventually. What you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely an amazing way to look at it. Uh, Fear, that's another another band that I just, um, I have not looked into for myself. I, uh, <clears throat> I do know uh, of their infamous Saturday Night Live appearance. Yeah. Um, John Belushi, I believe, invited him. Yeah. I think Ian McKay is in that mosh pit. Yeah, Ian McKay was in the mosh pit. Yeah. Uh, probably a bunch of other, like, DIY hardcore heroes were probably, probably. I, I would suspect I wouldn't be surprised if like members of, well, I don't know. I guess at that time, Henry Rollins probably would have been living in LA, but I was going to yeah. say maybe like members of black flag or something like that. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's hard telling, but being like that, that took place in New York. I could just imagine like everybody from all from the East coast, just, piling into vans and just being like, we got to go check this out. You know, yeah. um, it's, a, it's an amazing performance, not only because it's, it's pretty out of control uh, that they're performing those songs. Like I don't, people always say that Lee Bing actually sings the words to, I don't care about you. Cause the chorus is, I don't care about you. Fuck you. But I don't think he actually says it. He kind of dances around it. Uh, you know, syllabically or whatever but um the thing i really like about it are these moments of like silence because that's when you know something has actually gone way out of control way off the rails is when everyone around is silent and that's a scary thing like um like not to keep talking about my groups or whatever but in those voltage there was a lot of violence all the time and as long as the mu music was playing and people were interacting and having fun it just seemed like whatever but a couple times it got so violent that we had to stop playing and then it was just silence 
like and people getting hit and it wasn't even like it was just like dead silence and this sound wow you know and it's like that is terrifying that's beyond fun you know that's like we're in a moment here where literally no one even knows what to say let alone what to do and i think that comes through in that snl performance it's like Jesus, I can't believe this happened. <laughs> yeah, that definitely is one of those moments where you look back and you're just like, wow, uh, you know, the world is, uh, the world sometimes even like the, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, the mainstream commercial world mm-hmm. sometimes will stumble upon things that are very interesting uh, long enough that, it grabs the attention of other, other people that would otherwise not have anything to do with that. Uh, yeah. Another, another thing that comes to mind in a different way, but that uh, you can almost kind of compare that to is when Daniel Johnston appeared on MTV just out of the blue. Right. You know, like he just happened to be there and he was promoting his cassette and Mm -hmm. they just let him perform. Like, that's just something that, like, couldn't happen today. Yeah. Or maybe it's not that it couldn't happen. It's that it wouldn't happen. Like, I couldn't just show up to, like, some, like, broadcast from Coachella or something. Be like, hey, I got this tape that I'm promoting. Let me play. You know, like, I I just, you know, it's it's so interesting, you know, when you go through the the vaults of time uh when it comes to that sort of thing um yeah okay so sure. is that is that the uh yeah cut off that's, that's about all i had really i guess okay um <laughs> if you think of anything else feel free to uh you know uh chime in and uh, you yeah. know if, if you got other ones that come to mind and it's just like a moment where you're like oh crap i forgot about this one you know yeah uh so the, uh, I guess the more that I think about it, I have more bands than I do okay. albums also. In fact, I only have one album, okay. but I guess I could say band as well because it is the, uh, like I said before, it's my favorite album of all time, but it was also my introduction to the band. So okay. technically I didn't like the band either when I first heard them, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah. the album is... Uh, the band is Modest Mouse, and the album is The Lonesome Crowded West. Yeah, the, nice. The first time I heard that record, I didn't get it. I thought it was garbage. I was like, mm. what the hell is this? This is like, <laughs> it's like some weird mutated pixies or something, but it has some sort of weird Americana thing or something that I don't quite understand, and the, yeah. lyri- the lyrics are weird and the song structures don't make any fucking sense at all. <laughs> I mean, and and the singer has this voice that I can't, I couldn't understand the voice. It was almost like some weird talking heads, like punk rock sort of thing or something. And I just remember like, yeah. for some reason though, there was something about that record that kept coming back to me to where I was like, I got to give it another chance. I got to keep, I got to keep, even though I hated it when I first heard it, I got to give it another chance, Mm -hmm. you know? 
Yeah. And I kept li- and finally, like the third day of just forcing myself to listen to it, it clicked on me, and uh, you know, and I was just like, "This is absolutely fantastic." Everything about the way that the songs were written, the sounds on that record, the production, uh, everything about it just turned out to be perfect to me. Like it just like, it was everything that I wanted that I would have strived for a band to sound like that I was in at that time. Right. And I still think of it in high regard for sure. It's still one of my favorite albums and still, I still pretty much consider it my favorite album of all time or the album that I wish that I had written because it, I can't think of any other album uh, except for maybe like Fagazi's Repeater when I first heard it or like something like that. Big Black for sure. Uh, probably mm-hmm. more so Shellac than Big Black mm-hmm. for me, probably. Uh, but um, I can't think of any other album that had that much of a lasting impact on me. Uh, right. I can think of other bands. Uh, but you know, like just one singular album and, and I, you know, I definitely, I do still think that it's a great album, but I definitely listened to it in a different way than I did then. Um, but it pretty much Lonesome Crowded West influenced my songwriting, the way that I looked at, uh, guitar sounds, the way that I looked at playing the guitar, uh, I've never, I haven't played my guitar the same way since I heard Isaac <laughs> Brock's guitar playing on that record. Oh yeah, that's amazing. And how, who, how did you, what did you, where did you first hear it? Well, Tim, or, Tim Atkins. Um, yeah. I was, I went to um, uh, Davenport or something with him <laughs> and he had a uh, mixtape that he was playing and I had just gotten into not that long ago, the Pixies and stuff like that. And uh, he asked me if I'd heard Modest Mouse yet. You know, I remember they were still in that phase where they were a buzz band. And I saw like a up and coming little blip about them in Spin Magazine or something. But Mm -hmm. I didn't think that they were like, you know, I, I, I didn't think they were anything particularly good. Or judging from that article, they it didn't really sell me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then he played me a couple of songs, and I thought, eh, this kind of sounds a little cool. Um, mm-hmm. So what I did was I special ordered it from Musicland. And oh, uh, I was like, okay. you know what? I think, you know, like, you know, probably with the idea that, like, oh, I'm going to be cool now because I'm listening to a band that, <laughs> you know, like uh, no one's ever heard of, you know? Right. And sure. uh, that's how I I heard about it. That's how I got into that album. And then before I knew it, everybody was into that record that were my music friends, you know? For sure. Beyond, yeah. that, beyond that, nobody else really got into Modest Mouse, of course, until Flowed On in 2004. Now, of course, right. they're highly commercial, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it it definitely was a uh, is still to this day an influential um, 
record for me. And yeah, I never thought about music the same way uh, since I heard that. I could also say that uh, to probably a lesser degree, I could actually say that about Disco Volante as well. Mm-hmm. But with Disco Volante, like I said, I don't remember if I hate, I don't think I hated it. I think I actually right. loved it when I first heard it because it. it just sounded, it just, I'm sure it probably just sounded like lovely chaos to me, you know, right. like yeah. I, I couldn't imagine my 15 year old self hearing the beginnings of everyone I went to high school with and dead and just not being in love with it right away, you know? Oh man, that was, for me, that was the. That was the icing on the cake. Just having that be the opener? Come on. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. Maybe we should have records that we were actually pissed off at. Yeah, dude. (laughs) It makes me so mad. Uh, My my, my two records still would fit into that category. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the Lonesome Crowded West, I I adored it. And uh, I think... Chuck showed it to me. Uh, I don't know if that was by proxy from Tim or if Tim showed it to you by proxy from Chuck. Right. But I know that those two got into it uh, at the same time. And I remember uh, Chuck, I guess I should say Chuck Moore for people that might <laughs> not know who we're talking about. Yeah. Look him up on, uh, and bother him on Facebook. No, I'm just kidding. We... Uh, <laughs> we we used to be really um, comfortable with each other. We should, we could say like we weren't too worried about being too like quaint or tender or dear with each other. You right, know what I mean? Like right. you have friends like that where you're not really worried about saving face or, you know, trying to be cool or whatever. So we would just sit around and listen to music in cars. We would just drive around town and park somewhere, you yeah. know, but I remember hearing um, Teeth Like God's Shoeshine uh, in Chuck's car in the driveway of his house. It, it was like the end of the night and I was getting ready to leave or whatever. Um, and he was just like, you got to hear this song. And we just sat and listened to the whole record in his car. And yeah, like you said, I I don't think I looked at music the same after I heard it. It was like... Um, it was very much to me like the Pixies, like a lot, like the the drumming, especially like if you think of like out of gas, like that's just drums, you know, basically yeah. for a while. Yeah. It starts almost just, you know, and the vocals I felt like were really a lot like Black Francis's, not quite as wild, but that same kind of enunciation um, and delivery. Um, but it had something else that the Pixies didn't have. And that was, I think it was just letting things be really sparse, like beyond sparse, like just hearing a bass and some drums and a guitar, but only that and only played in conjunction with each other. Not like three people playing the same song, but three people playing parts of the same song, if that makes any sense. Well, yeah. um, Yes, absolutely. And I just, yeah, it's a great, great pick. I I loved it from the second I heard it, but still an amazing, amazing record. Yeah, it's definitely like, I, I definitely hear similarities to the Pixies. Also in like the lyrics, because Isaac Brock and Black Francis both 
write all these like weird sort of you know otherworldly lyrics that are just about like a bunch of like crazy shit <laughs> you know yeah but then they also um have very specific statements that you can relate with um that make it seem personal absolutely too. absolutely uh have you yeah. watched the uh, documentary on the Lonesome Crowded West yet? That's on YouTube. Oh, what's it called? I think I think it's just modest. Like it's on Pitchfork. It's like uh, okay. Uh, what's oh, it I called? See. Yeah, Pitchfork, Pitchfork Classics. Yeah. I think yeah. Like Forty-five minutes. Um, All right. One of the most interesting things that Isaac Brock talks about most of the lyrics and most of the themes about that record uh, mm -hmm. was actually about like uh, the malls that were coming into his town and taking like over everything. So I think a lot of it was just about kind of like the same type of thing that we all, it's, it's so weird. Cause it was almost like a prophetic. It's almost like prophetic when you think, or am I even saying that right? It was almost like a prophecy. We'll say that. Right. Uh, it was almost like a prophecy of like what's to come and like, you know, you know, like small town America, like, you know, oh, sure. and feeling yeah. like, okay, your town is just getting fucked over by all these big corporations. Now you go to like Iowa city and every Iowa city, Cedar Rapids. And you go to like these big towns in Iowa where we're from every single like corner has like uh, uh, like a mall with the same like restaurants and the same stores. And you know, it's, it's really interesting. And that's kind of what that record, I guess a lot of the lyrics on that record were kind of about. Yeah, well, it's funny because I was trying to find the right word for what made them different than the Pixies, and I think uh, just how the level of bleakness that was involved in it. And maybe, you know, that's the funny thing about packaging and presentation and the psychology involved in it. Is it really that bleak, or is it just the album cover of a cloudy sky in a city that makes you go, oh, this record's kind of bleak and sparse and you know, like a cloudy day driving down the road. You know, that's like what it, the feeling it gives you. Well, I think you also got to, you got to think about the context. The band is from the Northwest. And so like, I've never been to the Northwest myself, but I would suspect that it's, the weather is really dreary there all the time, you know? Right. And so like, I would suspect that, you know, because environment always has like an effect on art the art that's created there, I think, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I, I bet that there was a lot of that kind of going on in the, you know what I mean? Like, and, and right. it was probably just like, Hey, this would be a good opportunity to get like, sort of like a, a bleak looking photo for the album cover. Yeah. And then, yeah, if you, if you read a lot of his lyrics, I mean like bankrupt on selling, phew, that's yeah. like, that's like some serious heavy shit trailer trash. You know what I mean? Like it really, really was like just, you know, a really, uh, but yet, like you were saying it, I think it, he really did a good job of speaking to people, even people who weren't going through the, the type of shit that he was talking about, right. you know, yeah, it, he just really did a good job of speaking to people, um, on that mm -hmm. level. Interesting, interesting stuff. So now I guess that that'll segue into my next band, uh, which we just talked about, uh, which is the Pixies. Uh, okay, yeah. 
first time I heard the Pixies, I just didn't dig it. And I, I don't know why. Uh, I guess I just thought that they were like, it's probably funny because in my, cause I probably heard them when I was 13 and it was probably from watching like 120 minutes. And the first thing I probably thought about was this is like a wussier version of Nirvana, you know, like, which is ironic yeah, right. because that probably is true to a certain extent. But then like, it's like, I never realized how much I didn't realize at that time, of course, how much of an impact the Pixies had on Nirvana, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, I became a fan of the Pixies after I read, after being into Big Black, uh, that uh, Steve Albini produced Surfer Rosa. Mm -hmm. So I went out and forced myself to buy it, and I listened to it, and I was like, wow, what have I been missing out on here? Yeah. <laughs> I sure. mean, uh, so yeah, for whatever reason, my... Um, 13 year old self could not get into the Pixies. Now they're, they're also probably one of my favorite bands. I mean, yeah. I'm I trying to remember the first time I heard the Pixies. Uh, uh, it's probably gotta be from the pump up the volume soundtrack. Um, oh, were they, <laughs> they were on that? What's that? They were on that. Yeah, they did. Um, they did a wave of mutilation, but it was a like a slow version. Okay. Uh, what do they call it? Subterranean mix or something like that? Or oh, really? I I had uh, no idea about that. Uh, that movie has a lot of really good music on it, though. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Yeah, I definitely heard the the Pixies from it, and uh, then immediately went out and bought. I guess whatever they had out at the time, that was 90. So like Surfer Rosa, I guess. Yeah, sir, it would have been Surfer Rosa or it might have been Doolittle. And Doolittle, yeah. I had Doolittle pretty much right when it came out. And um, yeah, I I never looked back. I It was one of those things, like I talk about the Violent Femmes a lot because they're one of my favorite bands. But I got into the Femmes at the same time that I was way into like death metal. And uh, and the Femmes really spoke to me because they were really vulnerable and like it wasn't tough guy stuff and I felt like you could be I don't know how to say this without sounding kind of gross or whatever but you could be masculine and still uh, have feelings and stuff. right you know and um unfortunately for real when you're into heavy metal and other things uh even punk rock to an extent you don't have those outlets you know yeah like yeah. the first time i heard wave of mutilation i was like what in the hell is happening you can't be this vulnerable you can't play rock music and just expose your belly like this and like it it really spoke to me, and I never looked back. I, I love the Pixies and always have, you know. And uh, I wouldn't say musically, maybe songs here and there, they were a big influence on me, but musically I wouldn't say I knowingly took a lot from them, but just the approach to the music was cool because they weren't stylized, they weren't cool, they weren't 
interesting, <laughs> unfortunately, as people. Like, you look at them and they're just schlubs. Like, I've never <laughs> seen a band with less style than the Pixies. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. You know, and they just wanted to deliver these little ditties to us. And that's that's something to remember about making music is like, just make a song and see if people like it. Go back to why you did this in the first place. Don't overthink it or try to put it in a, you know, a, a cage or whatever and make it into something. Like, just write a little song and share it, you know? And I feel yes. like that the Pixies did that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And I would definitely agree with you that uh, they're a band that I didn't really like. uh, They didn't influence me in the same way that, say, Modest Mouse did, where, you know, I changed the way that I looked at writing songs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, they definitely were a band that I enjoyed for sure. Um, Next on the list is is another band, and I'm not sure how you feel about them or not, but uh, (laughs) the um, uh, they're kind of, I guess you could say, very related to Modest Mouse, and that is Built to Spill. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've never really listened to them. So. Okay, they're yeah. one of my favorite bands mm-hmm. of all time now, and uh, when I first heard them, and I got, I'm, I'm such a late bloomer. I remember seeing one of their videos when I was like 13 or 14 years old, and it just was not a part of my world at all. Like, I just, I just, I did not like it you know, at all. And then years later, and we're talking 10, 15 years later, probably, yeah. uh, it was actually Tim. He loaned me their album, keep it like a secret. And then, mm-hmm. um, I became a huge fan after that. And now I like everything they've put out. I mean, I, even their more recent stuff, I'm, I'm still a big fan of that band. Uh, but I definitely, uh, you know, was not into them at first. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then yeah, I, I read that record too, probably from Tim. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. And and when I heard it, the first thing I said was that I actually said was okay. Uh, I think I know where Isaac Brock got his vocal styles from, because <laughs> Built to Spill actually, and I'm not saying Isaac Brock ripped him off or anything yeah. like that, but Built to Spill predates Modest Mouse, and there are some, in my opinion. Uh, striking similarities to the way that those guys do vocals. It's actually the reason I didn't listen to Built to Spill. Oh, really? Looking back now, I feel like an idiot. But I was just like, well, they just sound just like Modest Mouse. What's yeah. the difference? Yeah, and you know you know what the secret to that actually is, ironically? Is uh, going back and listening to early Built to Spill because okay. his vocals do not sound the same on the early stuff. So actually, um, it's one of those things where it almost seems like uh, both bands kind of just naturally progressed into this similar style, you know? That can happen, yeah, for sure. And, you know, Doug Marsh, the singer of Isaac Brock, has even, well, actually, I believe it was actually in in that documentary, I think. He might have been interviewed about it, and... uh, because a lot of people saw a similar a similarity in their styles. And I think, right. you know, he even acknowledged that, yeah, Isaac and I, I think we both have similar aesthetics and that's pretty much what it comes down to, you know? Right. Uh, the big difference, of course, being that Modest Mouse held, or held, Modest Mouse went into a much more commercial direction. 
Mm-hmm. And for some odd reason, Built to Spill has managed to be on a major label this whole time and still sound and operate like an indie band. Huh. Uh, it's really interesting. Like, I have a ton of friends into them. I can't, I, again, it's one of those things, one of those groups that you just miss them. You know, yeah. there's no reason yep. for it. But um, I should listen to more. Should I start with this one? Keep it like a secret? I, I, that's the one that I was introduced to. And that's, that would be my recommended starting point. But then I would also recommend listening to uh, There's Nothing Wrong With Love. That was their second okay. record. And you will notice quite a bit of a difference between, like, stylistically, you'll notice, like, a difference, like, you know, and I I think, I think, you you might see it differently, but I think you'll kind of see what I'm talking about, you know, about how, Mm -hmm. like, the early stuff doesn't, vocally, he doesn't sound the same that he does, starting with, like, albums like Keep It Like a Secret, or actually the album before that, Perfect From Now On, but, um, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like it, it like, I think you'll kind of see where I'm coming from with that description, yeah, uh-huh. you know? Um, For sure. okay. So another, uh, another band, and this is one that I know we've had conversations about. And I know <laughs> that you, I think if correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty sure you've been a pretty big fan of this band pretty much from the get go. Uh, the okay. descendants. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, um, it's funny. I, a lot of times I'll attribute, um, getting out of heavy metal and into punk rock and indie stuff. I usually credit that to the Violet Femmes, but in reality it was the descendants. They, they and, were the ones that did it, huh? Uh, oh, at 100%. And the funny thing is you're going to not believe me. I got into the Descendants because of the Pump Up the Volume soundtrack. Oh, I I, I believe that for sure, one hundred percent. Like I can't uh, overstate how much this movie, this kind of trash movie, really <laughs> influenced the rest of my life. Like, well, it, it sucked. I have to just like have this soft spot for Christian Slater for the rest of my life. It's the reason which I wouldn't have had because of Gleam in the Cube anyway. Yeah, the pump up, pump up the volume is uh, it's it's the reason why honestly and, and this is going to make you laugh but it's the reason why I'm interested in doing like podcasts and uh, for a little while I was like I want to do radio broadcasting and I thought it would be fucking cool to like do some pirate radio state like I wanted to do that because of that movie I want to be happy Harry Hardon yeah exactly uh, wasn't that based on a true story like didn't it actually like happen uh, that I don't know, actually. Um, but yeah, yeah, the first record I got was All, um, and so that must have been 1990. Yeah, um, that would have been their, uh, that that was like their last album before they broke up the first time, wasn't it? Right, that was like, they put it out in 1987, I, I think. And uh, I think that's probably my favorite one, actually. Yeah, it's amazing. It yeah. is. It's fantastic. Um, but, uh, yeah, I want to hear about your uh, transition from hater to fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't a hater. I just, for some reason, there was always just something about them that I couldn't, I just couldn't get into. I, I bought Everything Sucks when it first came mm-hmm. out only because it was on Epitaph Records. 
Oh, yeah. And uh, what year was that? That was like a lot later, right? Ninety six. And I remember yeah. like uh, I had friends that were just like, uh, "Really, everything sucks." Is the only thing you've heard from them? <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, that's." All I really, for some reason, and I, I don't know why, I just didn't care. It wasn't, you yeah. know, like, and and I think looking back on it, the reason why is because that record itself was not a remarkable album, and so I guess mm-hmm. I kind of just thought it's a great record, it's a great album, but it's not one of their. It's not like Milo goes to college, you know, right. or anything like that. Yeah. And I think that that's what ultimately got me. Um, I, I, I sold everything sucks to, um, the, you know, used bin like a long time ago. I decided it was a record I didn't need. And then for whatever reason, I thought, you know what? I don't really need to hear much more from the descendants. And then I just, on a whim, I decided to buy their compilation, like their greatest hits, Selmery. That got me into them, um, a little bit more, but not to the point where I could call them like call myself a fan. And then what, what really did it for me was I watched the documentary, the filmage. Oh yeah. I haven't seen that yet. You haven't seen it. It's a great documentary. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, now I'm convinced I need to really. So, you know, now, like I said, I made a, uh, about six months ago or something like that. And it's, it's kind of sad that I'm admitting this, but six months ago, I heard Milo goes to college. Enjoy. Yeah. Um, what's the second one? Uh, I don't want to grow up. Yeah. And all wow. for the first time. That's awesome. I think it's great. <laughs> and like, uh, and I was just like, you know what? Yeah. Uh, it was from watching that movie, and and I was just like, God, th- these guys are fucking awesome. Yeah, I think they've. It's one of those things where. Um, to the, the world at large, I would say they're underrated. Mm-hmm. To music listeners and punk rock uh, listeners, I would honestly say they're a little overrated. Um, but I also think that all of that is warranted. <laughs> so, well, I, I, you know, they have this thing where they're like this really, you know, um, they're, they're, they're peers that they existed with at the time. It's interesting mm-hmm. because, you know, at the time that they were like big, of course you had black flag, you had like the Minutemen and all those seminal punk bands, you know? Right. Uh, but like, um, the descendants at the time were doing something in punk rock that mm-hmm. nobody else was doing. And then it eventually became what everybody in punk rock was doing. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, without a doubt. It's like, so um, weird. It's like they yeah. really are like the reason why pop punk became what it is. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I would say that between Descendants and Pop Ivy, at least as far as attitude and everything goes, like yeah. that it's kind of immeasurable. But again, like I said, that makes them somewhat overrated because they can't be you can't say it enough. Like this was, yeah. this was kind of ground zero, you know, like, yeah, it's like talking about black Sabbath or the Ramones in a certain way. You can't, 
there's nothing left to say. You can't tout it up anymore. There's no reason to. It's like, why convince someone, you know, to that black, uh, you know, or black flag in a certain way too. Like all, like all the seminal groups, like at a certain point, it's like, yeah, they did that. It changed everything. We'll, we'll never know what the world would have been like without them. Like, yeah, that's true. I can't overstate that. You know, that's true. So that's then. true. And and it's yeah, well, and it's been overstated. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> it's all done and done. You know, like every goddamn uh, top fifty punk rock lists of all time has a Descendants record, a Black Flag yes. record, uh, yeah. at least one. The Minor Threat, you know, complete discography. Yeah. Um, a Fugazi, yeah, exactly. Uh, right. Wouldn't it be great if we made like a, like if we got hired by like Rolling Stone to do like a top 50 punk rock albums of all time. And it was just, we just included like bands we'd never heard that we just found on like Bandcamp. <laughs> like, I wonder what their reaction would be like, yeah, the seminal band, uh, you know, you can find their album for free on uh band camp you know <laughs> yeah, right. or the particularly bad record by the seminal <laughs> punk group yeah. like soul force revolution by seven seconds like yeah. or it'll be something curious they would just be like that record is the shittiest one or yeah. uh into the unknown by bad religion right <laughs> have you ever you ever heard it you know you know the that record no. right so bad religion no. i don't know if you know this or not i don't know are you into bad religion at all um, not all that much. I had Suffer and uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Okay. I think. Yeah. Um, and listen to them quite a lot. I sure. liked them, but sure. didn't go much further. Than well, that. their their first album was How Could Hell Be Any Worse, and it was like mm. straight up just hardcore punk. It was like a lot different yeah. than the stuff they became known for later. Came out in like '82. Well, 1983, they put out their second album called Into the Unknown, and it was a fucking straight-up prog rock album. Like, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Dude, it sounds like Genesis. Yes. I mean, it's really fucking funny. And Why it, did that happen? It, I know. It's mind-boggling. And then, like, only, like, a thousand copies of the vinyl or something were proud. Maybe... 10,000 copies because it sold yeah. so little and I don't know like if they just it's not it's not it's not acknowledged it's like the long forgotten bad religion album you, huh. you can't find it anywhere like I think it was there was a bad religion vinyl box set that was released that had like all their albums up to the point that it came out which I think was like 2008 or something that <laughs> had like a reissue of it but other than that, like I, I think that all the copies, their leftover copies, got destroyed or something, because it just wow. like, and then they broke up for a few years, and then they reformed and did suffer. But no, you gotta hear. Go to YouTube. You can listen to it. It sounds like yes, Kansas. It's like fucking dude. Like it's serious. It has keyboards and everything on. I mean, I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Like, you know, it's going you know to be my favorite album. Dude, album, it's right? it's probably my favorite album from Bad Religion. Like, I really wish they would reissue it, you know? Like, just, if nothing else, for the weirdness of it. Do they pretend like it doesn't exist? Or yeah. Or what do they think of I, I believe yeah. so. I believe that, like, Brett Gerwitz and, uh, you know, he 
doesn't even want to acknowledge the record. Like it, and it sold so poorly and got so much hate because of course it would. Just a year yeah. ago, you put out "How Could Hell Be Any Worse?" Like it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like and yeah. and it, but it's cool. It's like I think that that's mm-hmm. awesome that Bad Religion did that. I love it when people don't acknowledge their previous works like Al Jorgensen with, with sympathy like he just straight up doesn't he acts like that wasn't a thing like yeah that's bizarre to me and I think Steve Albini wrote like some scathing review uh, of that in some zine and actually like threatened to like threatened Al Jorgensen with violence for putting out a record like that or something and then yeah. it was like right after that like and I could be wrong about that. I I, I, I had heard that or read that or something. I, I don't I mean, know. The, the thing is, it just sounds like the industrial goth music of the time. Like it's just yeah. It's head. not. Like, it's not. Cares, it's not. Right? It's not that bad. Who yeah. gives a shit? It's just like it just had to be so. Well, um, uh, even Steve, even in mm-hmm. I guess it was like right after that, Al Jorgensen like made the stylistic change. So. Maybe Steve yeah. Albini threatening to kick his ass made him <laughs> made ministry. I, I would absolutely love to see that fight, though. I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I do wonder what would happen. Uh, I'd like to see it now. <laughs> yeah, it would be hilarious, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, yeah, no, and then well, and then uh, that's interesting too because uh, the first EP that Big Black put out called Lungs, I guess mm-hmm. that that's the only work that Albini. Uh, is not happy with that he's ever put out. Like he, he doesn't, he finds it to be an unremarkable release and I love it. I love that EP, but you know, with sympathy, I didn't think was that bad. Like, but I'm also not really much of a ministry fan, to be honest with you. Like I never, yeah, it definitely, uh, it definitely kind of asked the question of like, if you're going to stick with a band regardless of what they do, you know, like ministry, I think easily by the late nineties, you had to basically be a biker or a a skinhead or something. I don't know. Like you had to be really violent. You had to, at least as far as how you saw yourself, you had to like, it was heavy duty shit, you know? And so this album that exists, that sounds like Depeche mode, like that's hard to deal with. You know, especially when kind of that tough image thing is sort of, I mean, it's really fragile, you know? And yeah. So yep. Having a record like that. I I definitely feel sorry for you. Like, you have to bite them or something, you know? Absolutely. I definitely yeah. feel sorry for the uh, angry, like, you know, people who like to otherwise beat people up. <laughs> I definitely, I feel sympathy for them. I wish that, I think that we should start a movement uh, where we acknowledge their feelings. What do you think, Eric? Um, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they've uh, kind of figured out their feelings by now. It's been quite a few years. It'd be, it'd be funny if we dress, <laughs> we dress just like them and we're just like, we understand your pain make like commercials <laughs> and stuff like that, you know? Uh, yeah. but yeah, no, um, it, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's true. That's true. There was definitely like this, even I, I like, wasn't it 
like those hardcore scenes, those underground hardcore scenes that existed in the nineties, you look mm-hmm. at like footage and most people who are like talking about that period of time, talk about how incredibly violent those were, Yeah, you know, like the sort of straight edge, hardcore scenes that sort of took place in like the nineties, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I, I never really was a part of a lot of that. And, um, I don't know. I, yeah, violence in me never really have gotten along all that well. <laughs> nah, me neither. I it's never. something that was wielded towards me and I didn't care for it. That's yeah. how my relationship <laughs> with violence. That's how I would, that's definitely how I would describe it too. Well, um, I think on that note, man, like it's been damn near two hours, Eric. Yeah, um, we've been talking. <laughs> we've, we've been talking. So I think on that note, uh, I think uh, I am going to go ahead and uh, cut it, cut it off right here. Uh, you have anything oh. else you'd like to add? No, not at all. It <laughs> was a fun conversation. So. Yeah, it was definitely a fun <laughs> conversation for sure.